when it comes to investors and what they are hoping and wanting to see in the market, there are some that are missing critical opportunities now with the hope of what they think is coming around the corner. Let's get ready to scale. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Ready to Scale. I'm Ellie Perlman, the CEO of Blue Lake Capital. You already know and love Jeanette and Ryan. Um, and um, today I'm actually, we're, we're going to have a bit of a different structure um, to the show. Um, Jeanette, Ryan, and I are going to record those episodes twice a month. That's the goal. And we're going to do it. We're going to do things a bit differently. We're going to talk about the things that, you know, we you know, love to read and, and share um, from our perspective what's happening in the market. We're going to talk about um, trends and, you know, interesting news, such, you know, in, for example, what's happening with the Fed's, um, you know, rate hikes, what's happening with multifamily, what's going on, maybe with China, you know, we're going to talk about all kinds of interesting things. Um, so stay tuned. It's, uh, it's going to be pretty interesting. Um, today we're actually going to, um, talk about a few topics that, um, are you know, pretty interesting to us. And I hope it's going to be interesting to you. Um, you know, we're going to start about with, with talking about our strategy and what we see in a market with other sponsors. Um, for those of you who don't know us, we're, um, owners and operators of multifamily assets across the U.S., mainly value add. Um, and so we want to share with you what we see um, in the market. And then we're going to talk about um, acquisitions, what's happening with pricing, with deal flow, um, and then um, wrap it up with um, discussing capital raise and investor sentiment. Um, you can hear all about that from Jeanette. Yeah, should definitely be a lot more fun. I mean, basically, it's getting an inside view into what it's like when we're having conversations in the office and there's no cameras around. Yeah. And some of the things that we actually like to talk about and, uh, you know, kind of bring them to the surface so that everybody else can be aware of how we really think and how we're really operating behind the scenes as all these different factors happen in real time, which every day is a different day. That's for sure. Definitely is. Definitely is. Um, wanted to actually start with some uh, interesting uh, news. So Blake was uh, chosen uh, is an honoree of Inc. 5000 as one of the, the uh, fastest growing companies in the U.S. Um, we're not, you know, we're we're buying pretty large deals, but we're um, small operators in terms of headcount. Uh, and so it's pretty exciting to kind of know what we um kind of look at what we've accomplished. I can tell that it's it's a hundred percent a team. Everyone, everyone here is is an absolute rock star. And when I say rock star, I mean someone who is extremely bright, but also humble and a team player and everyone is getting along with everyone else. Um, and if you're if you're running a business or ran a business and you know at some point in your career you know that it's finding the right people is the hardest thing to do. And when we find someone that is great, we hold on to them. And uh, it, it's it's fun for us to go to the office. We're working the hybrid model, but I know that I'm, I'm looking forward to you know, coming to the office and, and seeing everyone. So um, that recognition was, you know, pretty um, significant to us. Um, and uh, we're very proud of this achievement. So kudos to the team because, um, you know, we 
couldn't have done it, could have done it without each and every one of you. I think Ellie must be speaking of the, the rest of the team because I'm, I'm the boring guy that sits behind spreadsheets all day. So um, I'm the one that puts you to sleep on a Friday afternoon. So. But I no, appreciate the compliments. But, you know, it's, it's definitely true. And what I think is really important also when you look at it from, you know, some of the things that we've been hearing about, you know, distressed operators, companies that are really struggling, you know, anybody can start a company. Anybody can start a company. But to be able to effectively scale a company to do it in the right way, at the right pace, at the right time, you know, I think is really just a, a serious mark of leadership and wisdom and experience, uh, because that's where, you know, again, you can start a company, but how long can you sustain a company? How well can you scale a company? If you grow yeah. too big, you grow, you're out of control and you start to become inefficient. You know, if you don't have enough of a team, you hold yourself back from growth. So, you know, honestly, like no brownie points for reals. Kudos to Ellie for knowing how to scale a team out the right way and at the right pace, because we see that there's some other companies in a lot of trouble that got greedy, that got too big too fast, and it causes problems. So, you know, I think it's really exciting to be one of the fastest growing companies in the U.S. this year. Uh, definitely super proud of that and our team. Uh, but I think it also, you know, you deserve the accolades too, because you've got to know how to scale it at the right pace. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. Um, from my days at MIT, what I took away from that is um, kind of looking at companies and um, operations and thinking how can we, you know, how can I scale them the, the best way possible? And so I kind of looked at like kind of like a startup What's the five-year, 10-year, 20-year plan? Uh, who are the first hires? What systems we need to have in place in order to, to grow? Literally from day one. And I remember that some people told me, ah, you're thinking you know, too far ahead, too big. Just focus on getting the first deal done. And I said, yeah, that's important. But there's going to be chaos. And you can't really escape. It's not about getting you know, five deals, 10 deals, 20 deals in one year. It's how, how are you building systems to actually you know, grow um, the company. And so it's, um, it's, you know, it's, it's exciting. Um, and it's also the hardest thing I've ever done, I have to be honest. Um, but also, you know, it's amazing to me to see how much, you know, our investors put trust in us to invest, you know, with us. Um, I think that syndication has been around forever. Um, but in the past decade, it's been, um, you know, a bit more, popular mm -hmm. and many, many investors that started investing with syndicators in the past, you know, seven, ten, eight, ten years are actually going through um, what was perceived, at least I, I thought we were in a recession, apparently we're not. Um, and then some people would say it's a rich session and we're going to record <laughs> an episode about that because I have a few interesting things to say about that. Um, but a lot of, you know, investors are, are going through that cycle for the first time, you know, in their investment career. We, you know, we invest with family offices and um, seasoned and also, um, you know, high net worth individuals. And what we hear from family offices, it's kind of interesting to see because, you know, you can talk about investor sentiment, but usually family offices are excited when things are rocking like yes we're waiting we're waiting for you know the next opportunity where can we find a risky investment that can you know potentially yield you know 5x 6x on our money um on the other side of it you have investors that just started investing and they're used to 
cash flow, you know, for cash flow to come and hit their account every month like a clock or every quarter. And all of a sudden things are, you know, changing. And it's the first time that they're actually handling, you know, dealing with this. So we see some of our investors starting to ask interesting questions, mm -hmm. you know, around, you know, debt, around um, capital calls. Are you going to have one? We haven't had capital calls and hopefully we're never going to. Um, but we get those questions that we did not get before. Oh, yeah. So we, we definitely see investors getting more sophisticated, getting smarter, know what questions to ask. Um, and in between, you have seasoned investors. And I know you have investors that you're personally very close with. And they're oh, yeah. saying, we've been there before. It doesn't scare us. They're it's, like, it's fine. fine. You're fine, guys. Just write it up. <laughs> so calm. But it's yeah. great to have that kind of wisdom yeah. to tap into also. Because as much as a lot of investors are going through this, their first experience really with the shift in cycles. So are a lot of owner and operators, yeah. admittedly, right? Yeah. yeah so it, there's a lot of growth to be had all around, but I think that that's where these key relationships can be so valuable, whether it's family offices or just really seasoned and very experienced yeah. investors, you know, having the right network to tap into that experience and that knowledge, it makes a world of difference, just like it does building a team with different yeah. expertise, you know, yeah. it's, it's definitely a team sport. It's no joke that success in real estate comes with a team. For yeah, sure. yeah, of course. You know, I, I was around in 2008. Um, I was not an operator then. I was a real estate attorney. I remember that we were about to receive the final approval from the lender. And all of a sudden, we heard nothing. We were like crickets on the other side. And we try to get answers and no one will tell us anything. Um, until I finally got a hold of someone, it was a bank in London, if I'm not mistaken, either Zurich or London. And they basically said the committee has um, uh, basically, they, they withdrew the loan and they're, they're, not a, they're essentially not going to fund the project. And it was yeah. a huge project. Um, and it, it was, I remember kind of being hit by the shock, you know, a wave of shock of, okay, what do we do now? We were never in that position before. So you think that if you go through a certain uh, recession that you're prepared for the next one, but the truth is it's, it always comes from a different place and, and a bit of unexpected mm -hmm. um, place because otherwise it would be no consequences, no, you know, cyclicality because you already learned from, you know, the market or your mistakes from the, the prior, um, you know, recession. And this time it came from a different um in a different place. And, it's really interesting. Yeah. You're right. The factors can be very different and it can be everyone's first time dealing with certain factors, which I think we certainly are. I mean, when you look even at uh, climate change, which I'm not even big on climate change by any stretch of the imagination, but you have to admit that, that weather's becoming more extreme. Like right now there's yeah. a category four hurricane barreling towards Baja, California. First time since I think I read 1939 that a hurricane is expected to actually potentially hit California. And then, you know, Hawaii, unfortunately, the fire's wow. there. And we're in Boston. And literally just this morning, before we even started recording, there was a tornado watch, which is crazy. It's Boston, yeah. Massachusetts, man. Like, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, these are factors that people were not having to deal with before. And, you know, I'm curious to see how it ultimately is going to play into net migration trends and everything else along yeah. the way over the next five, 10, 20 years. You know, there's just, there's factors that are new and, and we're all 
handling them newly together, right? So anything weather related, uh, apparently Jeanette's a new meteorologist. So, uh, <laughs> make sure you direct any questions that way because I, I am oblivious. <laughs> um, well, yeah, you know, it's a lot of things are happening and, and we see our landscape you know, changing. Um, we're, we're hiring, we're growing, and we're hearing a lot of interesting things um, and insights into other operators just through um, interviews um, and also discussions with other, um, you know, sponsors. We like to share what we see and, and kind of hear from them what they think of the market. Um, we've been hearing about sponsors that are, you know, some of them are closing up shop, some of them are winding the, their funds down and not wanting to be in real estate at all or in multifamily. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think it's interesting because some of them are basically saying, you know, we're done. We've made enough money. You know, we don't need this. We don't need this headache. Um, my view is a bit different. It's not about money. It's it's about growth. And that's, that's what is motivating me and what's exciting to me. Um, yeah, this comes with a lot of, you know, running a company comes with a lot of stress. And many people look at, you know, Bullock and say, wow, you know, great success and your success story. And everyone is talking about the word success. But guys, you haven't been there when COVID hit in March and I lost sleep for about a week because we didn't know if we are going to be able to collect money. And we have to call each and every investor saying, we don't know what's going to happen. But let me tell you what I can do, what our, we're going to do, what the plan is. It turned out to be fine, and we were flush with cash during that period because we did early birds discount, and um, we convinced tenants to pay us, you know, two, three, five months in advance. So we we had you know pretty significant amount of cash, but it was really nerve wracking at that point because it's investors' money on the line, and so you don't see all those things. You don't see. You know, waking up at 5 a.m. to catch the 6 a.m. flight to go, you know, visit a property and come back and be home by 1.30 a.m. that, you know, mm -hmm. technically the next day. That's what it takes. So I understand and I actually respect, you know, other sponsors' decisions. They don't want to deal with the stress anymore, and that's fine for me. Um, you know, we're not, we're not going anywhere, and, and we're going to fight for each and every asset and make sure – but our investors, they always come, you know, they always come first. And so, and again, you know, growth is what's motivating me. So, yeah, and, and I'm sure many people who are working with us, you know, many family offices and ultra high net worth individuals, they don't need to invest or take any risks or, or, or work. And yet many family offices, the entire family gets up in the morning, they get on the car, they go to work and they stay there and they, and they work, um, you know, all day, mm -hmm. most of them, not not all of them, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's more than money. Um, you know, it's interesting yeah. that you bring that up because what actually motivates me, and this is probably going to reveal a little bit more about my personality than, than maybe everybody realizes, Ellie definitely knows it, but what motivates me is grit. So things just got harder. They just did. They got, they, they're harder, right? It just admittedly, it's yep. the industry, it, it's, it's harder to raise capital, the, you know, there's a lot more economic factors that a ton of uncertainty. I mean, it is not easy right now to be an owner and operator and to raise capital. It's not, um, you know, there's still a ton of opportunity to be had, but you know, before it was easy. And so easier, nothing is easy. All right. Easier. It was easier. Okay. It's not like we so, snapped our fingers and yeah. we had $20 million. No, no, it was still, it was still, but it was you know, challenging, yeah. but now 
this yeah. is where it gets extra fun to me because this to me is where it really becomes about dedication and grit. Yeah. And, you know, it's those that don't want to, you know, have to, to put up with this kind of stuff. And you're right, stress, that's fine, totally understandable. But for those of us that really love the industry, that really love what it's about, that are keeping our focus on the big picture, which is being able to actually create wealth together, which is just a beautiful concept. It truly is. Like, this is the time you want your fighters out there. You know what I yeah. mean? It's go time. Yeah. So I am actually motivated by the grit. I'm motivated by the challenge and the fact that it's gotten a little bit more challenging. Yeah. And frankly, that, that I think it's awesome. Like, yeah, okay. it, it, it really makes you think outside of the box, right? I mean, you have to get creative, especially from, let's say, in my shoes, financing structures have to be changed, have, have to be looked at from a different perspective or a turn profile, how we're looking at operating expenses. Can we create more efficiency? So the, these types of situations and in, in economic downturns, if you will, um, or, or when you really need to think outside of the box, get creative and find solutions. And, mm -hmm. and it's it's not right on the forefront, but um, there's opportunity there. Yeah, and you know, the LA office is um, is in Century City near Avenue of the Stars. And right across the street, we can actually see it from our offices. There's LA's like biggest golf course. And, and so it's interesting because I think some of the sponsors, some of the, you know, investors are just, you know, they're done. I, I tend to think, and I may get some hate for it, but I tend to think that they, they want to go back and play golf. They don't want the stress. And I always, every time I'm on, you know, on a phone call, standing, you know, pacing me in, in my office, looking across from my uh, my window, you know, seeing the, the, the golf course, you know, seeing people kind of playing golf, um, it's, it, it just makes the distinction a lot um, more apparent that you know what we're building this is not a lifestyle company and we're willing to work hard um and maybe at some point i'll get there i'm actually not a huge uh, fan of golf um uh, that's more my husband um but um you know maybe when i'm maybe when when i uh when i'm old enough to be done with it. I, I i can't see a reality where i'm not actually doing you know work um let's uh let's talk a little bit about you know we talked about some sponsors that are Closing up shops, um, not a lot of them, but there definitely are. Um, some of them are calling capital. And I know this is a topic that a lot of sponsors and operators, syndicators don't want to talk about. Um, it's not a very um, positive or reassuring topic to discuss, but nevertheless, it's something that we, we I feel that we need to. It's out there. It's on every investor's mind. Is this investment going to be okay? Is my money safe? Are they going to call capital? So calling capital, um, and, and I'm going to talk a little bit about it. We're going to record another, the next episode, we're going to get more, you know, in, in, in depth. We're going to have an in-depth discussion about the differences between the institutional world, uh, where calling capital is not a negative, it doesn't have a negative connotation. It's a different mechanism versus in syndication. Um, and we're, I'm going to talk about why sponsors are calling capital, what are the other alternatives to calling capital. But generally speaking, we've been hearing from a lot of sponsors and other investors, because they're investing with us, but also with other sponsors, um, that they were basically, you know, other sponsor were, sponsors were calling capital. And that essentially means that they need more money to either pay the debt because operations, the income from the property is not enough to cover the debt payments, or um, you know they ran out of money 
to essentially pay for CapEx, capital expenditures like unit renovations and, um, and you know, tree treatment and, and other projects. Um, and when they do that, essentially the new money that is coming in is usually being given preference over the other, um, you know, the rest of the, the capital that has been invested there from, from day one. So there is some delusion there um, of capital, but on the flip side, this money can really sometimes save the investment because the last thing investors, you know, want is for the sponsor to lose the asset to the lender. What the lender is going to do, they're going to sell it as quickly as possible to um, get it off the books as a liability. And they're not really incentivized to sell it at market price. And right now valuations are a bit down anyways. So there's going to be maybe enough to cover the debt, maybe some of it, but what's going to be left for investors, that's, you know, you don't want the lender to, to make that decision. And so that's a way that many sponsors found around it, where instead of going to get rescue capital, which is going to come with um, uh, a lot of uh, some strict requirements around when they need to sell or can't sell the asset, then they essentially bring, it's kind of bringing rescue capital from your own investor. So the sponsor is going to, they, they've reached out to their investors and said, you know, we're raising a million, four million, five million. And um, essentially that's, that's the capital calling that is happening throughout the industry right now. Um, the interesting thing is that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I haven't seen any fire sales. I haven't seen anyone selling on 50 cents on the dollar when you can just see that if you can alleviate the burden from this seller, then you're going to be just flush with cash day one. Yeah, this is a very timely topic of conversation because this morning in my inbox, there was a, a one of the first truly distressed assets that um, has come across the desk. And, and it truly is the exception. It's not the rule of this scenario, in this scenario. But um, the group bought it three, two, two and a half years ago for $58 million. Um, and they're preparing to go into default, and they're trying to sell it at $48 million, um, which, which is a, a large valuation. And, and I reached out to the broker and just try to get a little bit more insight. Um, and it is a, a smaller mom-and-pop owner. That's exactly what you were just talking about, is a, a firm that um, is liquidating. They're not prepared to. They've never been through a capital call. Um, so that that truly is the, the one exception. But... Um, I, going back to the capital calls, is I, I really do think it does have a negative connotation because the way I look at it is it, it's capital infusion. I mean, it's it's you have to react and you have to adjust. And I, I think there's a, a further, more negative implication that if you don't call the capital and then all of a sudden you defer, um, let, let's say you, you build up a lot of deferred maintenance, um, that that's going to impact you on the sale. So really, to your point, it's it's capital events like loan maturities, it's rate caps, it's, it's funding CapEx in a period of inflationary environment when the cost of labor materials and in, in, um, is drastically increasing. So it's it's just being able to infuse capital back into these projects so you can maintain the business plan. Yeah, and you know, it's similar to um, the phenomenon that we've been dealing with, and actually the entire industry have been dealing with, um, with um, rising delinquencies, not in all assets, not in all markets, but it looks like when COVID hit, some tenants felt like it was okay to default on their rent payments and not pay. And they didn't think that they could be evicted. Now they can. And what happens once they get evicted, most of the um, assets, most of the properties are not going to let them, you know, sign a new lease. And I don't think they took that under, under consideration. 
So once someone has an eviction on their file, the property manager doesn't even know why the application was rejected. They're not going to get in. So those tenants can either stay kind of illegally in the apartment under someone else's name or which is bad once they get caught, you know, it's um, they're, they're going to be evicted again, or they can go to the C and D assets that actually have no, no background checks, nothing. And essentially that's the, there's a lot of those tenants right now that are circling in the system um, and are being rejected and can't find housing. And it's actually, my heart goes out to them on, on one, you know, um, you know, part, part of me, you know, feels bad for them. Um, so if a sponsor defaults on a loan, some lenders, I mean, it's going to come out in the background check. Some lenders are just not going to extend a loan and um, the pool of the quotes is going to shrink. But also those who are going to take the risk, it's like an insurance company, you know, company, the quote is higher, the higher the, you know, the assessment of risk. Mm -hmm. So if your property, um, you know, burnt down, and I'm exaggerating three times in the last three years, insurance premiums are going to be very high. It's the same with, you know, the sponsors that are defaulting, going to default on loans, the next deal they're going to close, if they're going to be able to close, going to, the interest rate is going to be really high. So their investors are probably not going to get, you know, the best, um, the best deal because lenders are not stupid. They're looking at operators that defaulted on loans and they say, wait a minute, you know, maybe it's going to happen again. So I need to assess my risk, you know, to another company, I'll give them, the loan at a, I'm going to extend an off, you know, a loan at fixed, you know, six, five and a half percent fixed uh, rate loan for these guys. I think 6.2 is more of what I feel comfortable with. So it's, it's going to really uh, put more pressure on future deals. And I'm not going to even, I'm not talking about the huge companies. I'm not going to name right now that we hear in the news that are defaulting right now and what that's going to do. I think once you're big enough, um, you get some uh, some grace because then the risk assessment is a bit different. Yeah, especially yeah. if you're a preferred lender and, and you're, yeah. you're, you're part of the program and you've done a lot of business, they'll, they'll find ways to yeah. to make sure it works out. But um, it, you, you mentioned the collections. I mean, that that's a big, big topic of conversation. I mean, um, pre-pandemic, depending on the asset class and the market, you're, you're typically seeing 95, 96% collections. Um, and then unemployment rose and um, residents started to, what I would say is prioritize their, their, their existing savings to say, am I going to pay rent? Am I going to uh, put food on the table? How, how am I going to live my life over the next three, three to, to six months? And this was before there was any stimulus checks and the feds were pumping money into the economy, um, where the government and, and local counties started stepping in with assistant programs. So that, that really, it, it was a, a period of time where Residents just didn't pay rent because they didn't know what to do, but they also, they're, they're more educated consumers nowadays as well. So they, they knew that, hey, I, I, there's a, a moratorium in place, so I, I don't yeah. have to pay my rent. Yeah. Um, but next thing you know, once it's lifted, you, you, you get a, a ten to $12,000 check coming in because they were just sitting on that because they didn't have to. If I don't have to do something, look at the student loan repayments. I, I mean, I don't know any statistics on, on who actually paid their interest during the forbearance period, but... Um, it's, it's just the, the psychological concept of, I don't have to pay and there's no implication, so I'm not going to. Granted, things are back to what I'd call as more normalized levels yeah. of 95% collections, but um, that was a great example that you brought up of, of nobody knew what to do. You, you, you were giving early bird discounts. You were just trying to 
um, collect rent on, in the first three days of the month before late payments started coming in, and then you couldn't charge late payments, so ancillary income was yeah. impacted. So there were, there were so many components um, during this time period that, that were just un uncertain. Yeah, and I think, you know, more than ever, we're actually focused on not only the location, but the strength of the tenant base. That's more important than the location because you can buy an asset in a great location, but the specific asset has kind of a different demographics than the rest of the market. So when you're focused on the strength of um, the tenant base, meaning that they that the tenant base is essentially they are employed um, by a diverse kind of um, roster of companies that it's uh, there's kind of sticky jobs, so they're less going to be impacted, less likely to be impacted by um, any you know recession. But also that the delinquency is low. So we're talking about tenants that care about their credit. They want at some point you know buy a house and uh, move up in life, and so they make sure that they um, you know pay every you know every month. That's the focus for us as, as a company to find those you know, assets. And we have one asset um, actually in Georgia that many of the tenants are, they leave their um, shoes outside of the, the door. And that, I, I love that because it shows so much respect for the property. They see the, the, um, you know, the unit, the apartment like their own home. They treat it like their own house. Um, so that's, and it's one of my favorite assets, um, but it, it just, we bought based on location, but mainly on the strength of the tenant base. Um, let's, you know, you talked earlier about, you know, what you see in the market, um, walk us through kind of what you see, you know, transaction volume prices. Yeah. So, uh, it's a good segue. So, um, I, I think that anybody that's in, in multifamily real estate industry, the capital markets is, is really um, still looking to stabilize. I mean, the feds back in July um, were divided, but they ended up increasing interest rates another 25 basis points. So now with the fed funds target of five and a quarter, five and a half, um, it's the highest level in 22 years. And it's, it's not necessarily the rate that it's at because the market will adjust. It's the, the fact that it hasn't stabilized. So there's uncertainty when you're underwriting, well, before I rate lock is our rates going to go up another 25, 50 basis points. And like I said, going back to July, um, the feds were divided. They, they weren't sure if they were going to pause or if they were going to increase. But um, the strength of the labor market supports that there's still room to grow because um, it, you haven't necessarily seen unemployment tick up to, to a rate that takes that excess demand out of the economy. Granted, inflation's down below three and a half percent, but compared to eight and a half percent last year, that, that sounds great. But it's still above the feds target of two percent. Right. So. Right. Nobody knows what's going to happen in September. There, there's reason to believe that it might pause or um, there might be another slight increase. I, I think we're, we're still some, some time um, before we start seeing any type of, of cuts. But um, that said, the, the reason why I, I preface with that is because that's what's impacting not only transaction volume, 60% year over year, um, but pricing also coming off the peak of 2022 is down 20 to 25%. Um, and one really interesting trend, or actually two rather, um, is the level of appeals in the market today for taxes. Um, because just, just year over year, we've seen some assets in, in Georgia and Atlanta, for example, that the assessors um, are really aggressive and the assessed value is up 50% year over year. So um, current ownership is, is appealing to taxes. However, there's an implication on um, bringing it to market. So there, there's a deal that we're looking at today 
um, with that exact example where the, the tax assessment is up 50% year over year um, and it's currently under appeal, but the first level was denied by the BOA. Um, so now it's going up to the hearing level. However, they're trying to trying to uh, solicit bids on this, this property by end of week. However, our lender is going to underwrite to um, the new assessed value. We, we can't say there's going to be an appeal, a successful appeal. And even if it is successful, at what level? Is it going to come down 20%, 30%? Because our proceeds are, are impacted on that. So it, it, it's going to make a difference in, in $3.6 in proceeds, whether or not we get the tax appeal um, or, or whether or not we have to use the assessed value. So that's a risk we're not willing to take. So that, that's the first trend we've seen. Colorado specifically, on average, assessed values are up about 40%. Um, but the spread between what I would define as workforce housing value-add investments of 80s and 90s product relative to newer vintage 2000 product in, in a strong market, the same location, uh, th there's not a wide gap between the cap rates. So we have seen cap rates expand about 60 to 75 basis points coming off last year. However, it, it's for, for a value-add return relative to the negative leverage in year one, um, we, we just still haven't seen that infliction point, and that, that's what's driving transaction volume. And, but um, BOVs are up, so we anticipate this volume to increase, but those are two primary components that we're seeing in the market today. Explain what BOV is. Uh, a broker's opinion of value, so which is essentially okay. the first step in the process when um, an existing ownership that owns a property that they're looking to um, identify, if I'm going to come to market in the next, say, three months, what is my asset worth today? So they get a broker's opinion. However, I, I must admit that values, the, the initial whisper, which is essentially what the, the BOV is based on. So let's say a broker thinks this property is worth $60 million. Uh, we're seeing deals trade on average between 7 to 10% below whisper. So those, those opinion of values are changing every day with the interest rate environment. But um, we're, we're finding more creative ways to, to finance the deals. And um, we, we've spoken to a lot of groups that are looking at... Um, paying down the prepayment. So typically in a value-add program back in 2021, when interest rates were, were um, near the floor, you'd put bridge debt, debt on and you'd, you'd anticipate to refinance after two to three yeah. years, um, where now the, the same program, they're looking at five to seven years of fixed rate agency debt. And what they're doing is they're buying down the prepayment to let's say year seven or year five, which is going to um, cost a, quite a bit of money, but at the same time, you're reducing your risk on the front end of, of the fluctuations in, in the interest rates. Um, and we're also seeing interest rate buy down, interest rate buy downs where you can you can reduce your um, interest rate by 25 basis points by paying 2% roughly of, of the loan costs. So um, we're, we're seeing different ways to to finance both core plus and value add deals, but um, the, there's there's still a period of um, where where's the terminal where's the terminal um, interest rate going to be? When when are things going to start to stabilize and where? And at what point are we going to come back to a, a, a positive leverage? Yeah, definitely um, interesting time. You know, just uh, yesterday, last night, I received every once in a while I um, receive a you know an email um, with a random broker you know wanting me to look at a deal. And of course, I sent everything to you guys. Uh, and it was a funny email because it essentially said. And I don't quite remember what was the whisper. It was, I believe the whisper was around 80. So they've said, here's an asset. Um, it's off market, which I highly doubt it. Um, but they're saying the seller wants 80 million. We um, recommend that you start, that you submit an offer around 70 million. 
And I was looking at the email. So why are you telling me that there's a $10 million gap between what you think the asset is worth and how much the seller wants to get paid? I'm not going to freaking waste, you know, my team's time on it. This is, this is a, you know, it, it's just not going to be worth it, but it, it just, it's interesting to see um, you're saying BOVs are up to me that it says that, um, sellers adjusted their expectations because when there's not a lot of BOVs, it means that brokers understood at some point that the delta, whenever there's a big delta between how much they think they can get for the people to pay for or groups to pay for the asset and how much the seller is willing to sell it for, they don't want to waste their time. Sure. It happens a lot. You know, last year there was a huge delta. The assets were not sold and brokers are sitting there thinking, we're just, we're spinning our wheels. We're just mm -hmm. wasting time. Um, and I think they're done doing it. And that's why also BOVs are down. They essentially said, we can do a rough estimate before we go, because the BOV is a whole process. They go through right. the asset, they take pictures, they speak with the property managers, they look at comps and they create this, you know, 20, 30 page long document. They have, you know, a meeting with the ownership and they, they basically explain, you know, this is the base case scenario, the worst case scenario, like the strike and base. And um, it, it's a lot of work. Sometimes it takes over a month to do that. So they don't want to do the work if they know with a, an hour work of back of an envelope calculation. They're, you know, I, show me the NOI. Tell me where the where the asset is. I'll tell you. I'll give an estimate of where it is. And if there's a, you know too much of a gap, why would I waste my time and my team's time and resources go through a BOV? I'm only going to get paid if you can if if the asset is being sold, and I don't think I can sell it. So that speaks volume, the fact that BOVs are up because it says that valuations um, came down, but it also means that that owners are now making peace with the new valuations. Sure. Now, I know probably some of our investors are thinking, wait a minute, what does it mean about all the assets that we've invested in? You got to remember, we're not exiting in the next you know six months, unless we're going to make a profit and it's going to make mm -hmm. sense. But whatever is happening now, the beauty in real estate is that when you bought, when you invested, um, you know, let's say a year ago, it was a five-year hold deal. That's the deal. So when we're exit, we're not exiting now again unless it makes sense. So we're going to exit usually at the end of the, um, the 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 hold period. In four, three, four, five years from now, I want to hope, and I. You know, I believe that that the the market is going to look different um, than it is now. Otherwise, we're going to be the the, the we're gonna, the the U.S. economy is going to be in a much bigger trouble than just multifamily. Um, but whatever is happening now, even if you you know we've invested, you know, um, and cash flow is not what it was um, when what was projected um, a few years ago. The real test is when the asset is sold. Then what is your equity multiple? What is the IRR? Focus on that. Um, and don't be concerned about what's happening. I mean, you should be always concerned about any investment, sure. but just remember that the exit is going to happen a few years from now where valuations are hopefully going to go up, net operating income is going to go up, and that's also impacting um, you know, the, the purchase price. So just keep that in mind. Yeah, and, and think about that. So cash flows and, and exit appreciation or terminal values is, is are the two components of, of the return profile. So 
um, we, we've modeled for a lot of this. So it's, it's, you have to deal and react to the business plan that you, you wrote and you have to execute. But um, what we have also seen is those groups that are selling in the market today are really twofold. There's actually a healthy mix. There, there's not so much distress. Um, there, there's a lot of liquidations, as you've mentioned. So a lot of equity partners are starting to liquidate their portfolio. Um, there's still fee redemptions. So there, there's some of the larger institutions that are, are facing some liquidity issues in their funds. Um, but really, uh, the bulk of the deals that we're seeing in the market today are, are really a basis play, where these groups bought the deal back in 2017, 18, 19, um, and, and they've already executed their business plan. So yes, it might not be the op most opportune time to sell. However, I want to trade my asset in today because I can still deliver a 15, 16% net IRR to my investors. However, I'm going to recycle that capital mm -hmm. and I'm going to buy a great deal at a great basis yeah. right now. So I'm going to recycle the capital. So that's really what we've seen in the market today. It, it's, it's selling because you want to, because you want to recycle that capital. Um, and that's, that's predominantly what we're seeing today. You know, I'm so glad you said that because when it comes to investors and what they are hoping and wanting to see in the market, there are some that are missing critical opportunities now with the hope of what they think is coming around the corner. Mm -hmm. They think, oh, man, we're going to see, you know, uh, the price of, of assets just be slashed. And that's what we mean when we say a fire sell. You know, and they think that, you know, oh, if we just wait a while, sit on the sidelines, we're going to see some, I'm talking clearance items coming out. And that's just not the reality. It, it, that's not the reality. And they're trying to time the market, which is yes. almost impossible to do unless maybe you're a Warren Buffett. But, uh, yeah, exactly. You know, we, we had that conversation last yeah. week. I mean, we're, we're almost at the bottom, in my opinion, based on, like I said, this, the, where, where cap rates are stabilizing, um, where, where the feds end up pivoting. But that's exactly right. So what's the difference if I buy an asset at 188 a unit or uh, 190 a unit? It doesn't make that much of a difference because, like I mentioned, not even 12 months ago, there the investor sentiment was paying 20% more for that same exact asset. So you're insulating your risk by buying the basis yeah. and, and working through whatever whatever's to come over the next 18 months. Um, and then we're going to be back in a period where there's there's liquidity and there's capital flooding into the multi-family real estate sector and specifically um, construction starts and, and construction loans yeah. are, are non-existent at this point. So yeah. yes, we're, we have a, a supply glut coming in over the next 12 months. Um, however, what's going to happen in 2025 and 2026 when rents, there, there's already an affordability issue. Um, and then what's also going to drive demand in 2025 is, is the affordability gap. I mean, the, the massive spreads between home values and, and interest rates um, is, is 30% to 40%, depending on the market, from what we're seeing. So that's going to fuel more demand for the rental housing sector. And if there's not enough supply coming in the next 24 to 36 months, it's just going to support rent growth and fundamentals and absorption all over again. So um, I, I truly feel I'm, I'm bullish about the next three years and, and getting in at the right time today at the right basis. That, that's, that's my crystal ball. I don't know if it's any better than anybody else's, but I'm, I'm standing by it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and actually, it's a good, um, that's kind of a good segue to investors' sentiment and capital raise. And um, some of our listeners are other sponsors, um, and we also have some family offices that are listening. But a lot of our in, you know, listeners are actually high net worth individuals, accredited investors. Um, and, you know, I think uh, everyone, 
wants to know what's happening from, you know, what are other investors are thinking, what's, what's on their mind, how kind of um, get insights into that um, capital raise landscape. Um, but before we dive into it, just um, a quick word from our sponsor and uh, then uh, Jeanette's going to tell us uh, what she sees um, as, you know, from her chair, uh, from her seat as Director of Investor Relations. We'll be right back. Ready to Scale is brought to you by Blue Lake Capital, where we hunt down the best multifamily investment opportunities that we can find and invite investors to join in with us. We target Class B value-add multifamily properties across the Sunbelt. Our CEO, Ellie Perlman, invests a substantial amount of capital into every deal. This means our interests are aligned with yours. If you're an accredited investor looking to expand your portfolio and diversify sponsors, be sure to visit us at bluelake-capital.com. Blue Lake Capital, be bold, be extraordinary, and keep moving forward. All right. So Ellie, I'm glad that you brought this up because I kind of want to shout this, you know, from the rooftop, um, you know, some investors, all investors are definitely not the same. So some investors really do recognize that right now is a very key window of opportunity, much like you were alluding to, Ryan, where they are being very bullish. They understand that the current circumstances will turn. We are just in one part of the cycle. It's going to move again. And they want to get in now. And it kind of reminds me of Warren Buffett when he says, you know, be greedy when others are fearful. Uh, because right now, there's a lot of people that are also being fearful. So we've got kind of on one hand, the bullish investors that are recognizing that it's really, this is a window of opportunity, we've got to move. And then there's another kind of subset, if you will, of investors that are thinking the opportunity is coming later. And it's those investors that I really just want to, you know, shout from the rooftop, you know, don't, don't miss current opportunities here and now in the hope that you're somehow going to see something better down the road, because the likelihood of that is very small. And, you know, in a nutshell, and if you guys disagree with me, feel free to say so. But the reality is, is that, yes, there's a lot of opportunities, but these opportunities are not going to make their way down to the average retail investor. And before there's going to be a lot of other players that are going to jump all over that opportunity before it even has a chance to really hit the average investor, if you will. So what I mean, for example, is first of all, lenders don't actually want anybody to default. Lenders don't want to own real estate. So first of all, lenders right now, I know for sure, are really working with operators and being a lot more flexible about that. They have no interest in seeing everybody default across yeah. the board. That's the last thing. Also bad for business. Yeah, 100%. So that's, they're, they're working with sponsors. So first of all, lenders are stepping in. Secondly, if for some reason lenders, you know, can't work well enough with the sponsor, or there just isn't enough of a way to save the deal per se, other operators are jumping in and yeah. they're coming in and they're saying, hey, give me part of your GP. I'll bring some rescue capital into you. You can save face. Your investors don't really have to, you know, realize the extent of the trouble that you're in. It's just going to be, a, you know, a JV. Give me, you know, some of your GP. It's great everybody's saved and it's a win-win situation pretty much for everybody involved. And so you're going to see that happening a lot more too, before you're going to just see the entire industry start falling apart and suddenly apartments are in clearances across the country. That's just not going to happen. Yeah. The speed is also different when there is 
need for rescue capital, the sponsor, usually it's not in the market and going through the entire marketing cycle. And then there's, you know, 60, 90 days to raise money and you see a nice OM, you know, offer a memorandum, you know, at once a deal, you know, once the deal hits that phase when it needs rescue, things need to move really quickly. Mm -hmm. And um, probably those with some rescue capital funds or just, you know, family offices that are staying on a pile of cash can move money very quickly, even if they're not liquid, it can have pretty, you know, um, pretty large uh, line of credit that they can mm -hmm. use and then finance it later. Um, but it's not gonna be, it's very, very unlikely for any investor to see an email saying, we just bought this amazing asset, 50 cents on the dollar or a 60% discount. Also, you have to understand what, when, when you're as an investor, if you're waiting for those opportunities, 99% out of, you know, 99 out of a hundred times, there's not going to be cash flow. The deal exactly. is already distressed. There's not the money coming from operations from, uh, you know, from rents is not enough to cover debt payments. So there's not going to be enough for you. Um, and I, I, Interestingly enough, I see a correlation between the need of some investors to capture that moment and, and, and wait for the you know best deals and their sensitivity to cash flow. These are usually the investors that live and breathe cash flow. These assets are usually not cash flowing, and that's why family offices love them because they don't care about cash flow. And if you know, I always look at people and groups that have done bigger and better than me and learn from them. And if you look at the wealthiest families in the world, in the U.S., family offices, when we say family office, it's usually a family or a few families um, with about a minimum of a hundred million in investable assets. So they've amassed, you know, just, you know, hundred million minimum. That's, that's a pretty um, high bar they're not concerned about cash flow. That's how they build their wealth because they were not focused on how much money I'm making today, but how much I'm going to make in three, five, seven, 15 years from now. Mm -hmm. And that's how they built their wealth for the most part, or how much that's how they grow in their wealth. So that's one thing to think about as an investor, thinking about opportunities. If you don't mind about cash flow, they're going to be, you know, opportunities there, but it's not, you're not going to be flushed with, you know, emails from sponsors saying, hey, here's, you know, we got this great deal. It's going to be, for the most part, there's a lot of capital calls like we talked mm -hmm. before, or family office is going to step in and, and quietly, you know, sponsors groups don't want people to know that the asset is being, is that on default, um, is defaulting, that they're defaulting on the loan. So it's not going to be in the market and they're not going to open around the bids. Right. It's going to trade quietly behind closed doors quickly and most investors are not going to have access to those deals. Correct. Nor, yeah. to be very clear, would they want them. I mean, to put it very, very bluntly, this would be money that you see zero return on for possibly three, five, seven years. Unless, you know? um, yes. Um, sometimes you can create some sort of a creative mechanism where you get, if there's some cash flow um and, and you can essentially look at rescue capital for cash flowing assets so for instance if the sponsor ran out of money to run their capex project it doesn't money this money doesn't come from operations you're still cash flow so in that case you can mitigate your risk and say okay i'm going to be you know i'm going to receive some cash flow but many times that's not the case 
-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's the, the institutions in these family offices that you're speaking about is they're, they're really truly looking for preservation of capital. Um, I mean, they have an, a, a long-term outlook. I, I read something the other day that was actually pretty funny. It said, you know, JP Morgan owns all the cash, Blackstone owns all the real estate, and Warren Buffett owns all the farmland. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it, it's, it, that didn't, oh, that didn't happen immediately. But yeah. uh, going back to that point is we, we spoke with some institutions recently that it all depends on their investment strategy. They have they have different funding vehicles where if they're looking for yield, they'll buy a core plus play and they'll look for the basis. And they don't particularly care for um, anything other than the long term. They're, they're looking at all in returns on the value add side exactly, is when they're looking for the all in returns. They don't need the immediate cash flow over the next three months. They want to see you actually execute your business plan, recycle that, ca that those cash flows to reinvest in the property and then get me a higher valuation at the exit. I, I, it, it, that's why I really don't think we're going to see the flood of distress um, that we yeah. talked about in 2022. I mean, yes, we are getting to a period where groups are still trying to figure out what to do. But exactly to your point, investors are savvy. They don't want to lose money. So they'll do whatever they can. If they yeah. need to infuse capital, if they need mm -hmm. to bring partners in, the, these conversations have already been had um, and they're already being executed. So whether or not we can be a part of that is, is what we're see seeking right now. Sure. Um, but I truly don't think you're going to see the example that we opened up on earlier today, where they, they bought the deal in, in for $58 million and now they're willing to take $48 million. Yeah. However, it, it, they, they had, a, 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 I guess, call this a fun vehicle. Um, they're, they're using dollar cost aver a, a, averaging. They're, they're not taking a complete loss. They're just diluting the, re the returns through other, other asset classes that they've, they've diversified throughout. So this, this is just um, a, a blip, if you will. But they have other assets that are that are outperforming that are gonna gonna average it down. So um, I guess what I'm alluding to is I, I don't anticipate the volume that um, coming out of NMHC um, was kind of the sentiment is is gear up, get your capital ready. Yeah. Um, there, there's going to be opportunity. Yeah, for sure. And I will say too, um, you know, obviously deals are being done, and you know everything has also not come to a screeching halt, which I think some yeah. people are under that impression, which is ridiculous. Um, I can speak to this first and foremost because we're closing on a very sizable deal next week. And so, you know, I've been actively raising capital for several months, you know, for this deal. Has it been harder? Yes. Yes, it has been, admittedly. Are there still plenty of people that are very bullish and actively investing and cutting checks and yeah. even bigger checks than they used to? Absolutely. Yeah. And this is, again, you know, where I'm saying there's different types of kind of sub subgroups, if you will, of investors. And and so investor sentiment is really kind of splintered is really the best way to explain it right now. But I mean, deals are definitely getting done and opportunities are being seized. Anything else you want to add before we're going to wrap it up? Maybe, you know, talk to us a little bit about our of course, family fund. Of course. And anybody that ever plays volleyball, this is called the setter, right? The setter hits the ball <laughs> and you get to come in and spike it. So yes, you know, so one of the best ways to obviously kind of address some of these uncertainties in the market but yet still remain savvy and active in your investing is obviously going to be a fund because you want to be diversified. And that's one of the best ways that you can minimize risk right now when there are a lot of variables, you know, that are outside of everyone's control. So on that note, it just so happens that we have our new Blue Lake multifamily fund. And I'd be more than happy to get into the details with anyone that's interested. I would highly encourage you to consider taking this approach. It's again, that right now is a great time. If there's a window of opportunity, you wanna get in on it, but you wanna be smart about how you do it. And that's exactly what the fund offers investors. 
got great returns. Uh, we've got our first asset we're adding in. We're going to be building in a lot of additional assets into it. And it's always really fun to be part of the growth and seeing it from the beginning also. So anybody want to talk to me, please email me. It's Jeanette, J-E-A-N-N-E-T-T-E at bluelake-capital.com because my parents apparently felt the need to give me as many letters as possible <laughs> in my name or even give me a call. My number is 210-740-5431. And then, of course, you can always go to our website, bluelake-capital.com. And we're going to have um, the contact info, maybe not the phone number, but the contact info and the links uh, in the show notes so you can read about it. Of course, uh, just as a disclaimer, we're not registered broker dealers or investment advisors and every investment has risk. And I always tell investors, um, this disclosures and disclaimers aside, um, always invest if you feel comfortable. If you're not, don't do it. It doesn't matter how much we're going to sit here and, and you know convince you. And I, I'm, you know, I believe in my deals. I invest in every single deal that I present to um, our investors. Um, but you, by the end of the day, each and every one of you uh, need to feel comfortable and confident in your um, investment decision. Um, and of course, it's not a um, an offer to sell securities. And we have a full PPM that you can read uh, with all the disclaimers and disclosures. Um, and after I can't kind of kill the vibe. Ellie's inner lawyer that she just had. Once help. an attorney, always an attorney. Um, I hope I didn't, you know, kill the vibe here. But just wanted to uh, to be kind of, you know, accurate. Um, but you know, that's been a, a great, fun discussion. Mm -hmm. uh, thank you, you know, um, for for taking the time to sit here with me in our Dedham office, right outside of outside of Boston. Um, we'll go back to, to the office. Um, we're recording this from, uh, uh, the conference room. Um, I, I don't want to see what's happening outside before we left. <laughs> I, I saw something happening in the parking lot. Uh, it involved rain and, and the rain was moving in a in circular motion. <laughs> so I, I'm curious to see what's going on over there. Uh, probably going to pick up lunch and that's going to be, um, you know, high risk, uh, high risk activity. <laughs> Should I get it delivered? Um, but anyways, great. You know, I, I appreciate, um, I appreciate your time. Um, and you know, I hope that the listeners, uh, enjoyed our conversation. This is really, yeah. let us know what you think of our new format. Please make yeah. sure you leave us some comments and let us know if there's some other subjects you want us to dig into. If you want to hear what we really think about it yeah. and how we talk about it, you know, in the office behind the scenes. Yeah. Yeah. And this is essentially know. the conversations we're, we're having. Um, and we're going to talk about topics that maybe some uh, other sponsors are trying to avoid or don't feel comfortable talking. Um, but we're, we're an open book. We're just going to tell you what we think. Um, and if you can just, you know, we're putting a lot of um, effort, time and effort into this show. If you enjoy listening to us, you can just um, give us rating, write a review. Uh, let us know what you think. Um, that will be greatly appreciated. Yes. Thank you, Ryan, Jeanette. Uh, and thank you, the listeners. Again, have an amazing day. Be bold, be great. Keep pushing forward. And uh, we'll see you on the next episode. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.